Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Well, you're listening to Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tarmati. Fantastic to have you guys back again. I hope you're ready for an epic interview. I have New York Times bestselling author, Patrick McEwen, Professor Patrick McEwen, to guest. He is a legend in the field of breathing. Um, he was educated at Trinity College, but completed his clinical training in Russia and was accredited by breathing coach, a renowned physician, Dr. Konstantin Buteyko. Buteyko is a, is a type of, of breathing methodology, if you like. Um, he has trained elite military, special forces, SWAT teams, Olympic coaches, athletes, and he's advisor to the Extreme Performance Training Center, XBT, by big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton. Many of you will know who that crazy man is. And has taught more than 700 breathing instructors across 45 countries. And he has actually courses on this. He has written a number of books. Uh, the one that really changed my life and my outlook on breathing and what it's all about and how it impacts so many different areas of our health and our life was The Oxygen Advantage. So I really highly recommend getting that book. Um, we also had on the uh, on the podcast just a couple of weeks back, James Nestor, who is also another New York Times bestselling author uh, of a book called Breathe. And again, both of these guys come to many of the same conclusions, slightly different uh, aspects and angles that they come from. But this stuff is really, really mind-blowing for foundational health. We, you know, we always talking about nutrition and exercise, but we often forget about breathing and sleep. And these two are as fundamental as the food and our exercise. If you don't get your sleep and your breathing patterns right, and often those two are combined because you won't be breathing right at night if you're mouth breathing, then you doesn't matter what food you put in, doesn't matter what type of exercise you do, you won't be getting the best out of your body. Um, and we're all about optimizing performance and health on this show and being ha- preventative. So I'm really, really excited. It's a, it's a great long interview with Patrick, who's sitting in Ireland. Uh, but before we go over to Patrick, just a reminder, um, if you haven't read my book yet, my latest one, Relentless, How a Mother and Daughter Defied the Odds, why the heck not? It's an epic read, if I do say so myself. But this book is uh, was two and a half years, took me to write the book. It is a real mindset book about overcoming the odds and coming back from the brink of death and defying what the medical fraternity said was an impossibility to do, and we've done it. And it outlines in there the mindset that's required, the therapies that I undertook. It's just a, a packed full of information that will help you in your life, whether you are just trying to overcome some sort of an obstacle or challenge in your life, or whether you're really wanting a bit of a roadmap for a brain injury, or if you're just wanting to know about some of the latest biohacking and that information out there, then make sure you grab that book. You can get that at lisatamati.com, or if you're in New Zealand, you can get it in bookshops. It's also available on Amazon and on Audible and you know just all of those big uh, digital platforms right around the world. It's called Relentless. Don't forget that name, Relentless, and uh, How a Mother and Daughter Defied the Odds. Um, if you're wanting to work with me at some stage, if you need run coaching, we have Running Hot Coaching, which is our online run training system. 
We do personalized, customized training programs made specific to you and your goals, no matter what level you're at, whether you're running your very first 5K or you're doing your 100th ultramarathon. Um, we can tailor a plan that's made specifically for you. If you're running into burnout, if you're running into injuries, if you just don't know where to start or how to optimize your run training, then Neil, my business partner and my longtime coach, exercise scientist, Neil Wagstaff, and I would love to help you. We do full video analysis as well as the customized training plans, and you get a one-on-one session with me. Uh, It's a great package, so make sure you go and check that out at runninghotcoaching.com. And for the last thing is our epigenetics program. We've been talking about this for quite a while now. If you haven't done that, you're really missing out because you need to understand what your genes are all about in order to avoid all the trial and error. You know, Instead of going, what is the keto diet right for me? Is pay right or should I do this type of exercise or what time of the day should I train or understanding everything about yourself and your genes, every part that your genes uh, has on your life, whether it's about your mind, your social, your environment, your career, all of this is covered in this amazing program. It's not just food and exercise, although that's a big part of it. If you want to know about that program, you can uh, join us on one of our free webinars. We do that every two weeks. And you can register, and it's in the show notes, epigenetics.lisatamati.com. Or if you just head over to my website, lisatamati.com, and hit the Work With Us button, and you'll see our epigenetics program listed there. Go and find out all about it. Or if you've got any questions, just reach out to me, uh, info at lisatamati.com. Right, over to the show now with Patrick McEwen all the way in Ireland. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits today. I am super, super excited because someone that I just absolutely admire and think is absolutely wonderful I have on the show, Professor Patrick McEwen. Welcome to the show and very excited to have you on. Thanks very much, Lisa. I love that title. It's the first time anybody has ever called me professor. So, yeah, (laughs) hopefully it sticks. (laughs) Well, it's in your your Wikipedia. It must be there. It must be right. (laughs) If if anybody deserves that title, you deserve that title because, I mean, the the amount of books that you have published, Patrick, is just absolutely phenomenal. And you have a brand new book coming out as we speak. uh, Apparently, it's gone to the publishers today. So, I did want to, you know, so let's, uh, before we get into the big interview, the new book is called the breathing, the breathing Cure. The Breathing Cure. Everybody yes. go and get The Breathing Cure as soon as it hits the bookshelves. It may not be out uh, in some countries yet. So in New Zealand, you're going to have to wait a little wee new while. But um, this is, uh, by the looks of it, an absolute, like a seminal work. I really like everything in the kitchen sink. Uh, by the looks of the size of it. So I'm, I'm keen to dive into it. Um, I've come to new, know you through The Oxygen Advantage, your, your previous book. Um, it's been a game changer for me. Uh, and I was just desperate to share the information and to disseminate it to people that follow me and my crowd down here um, and share the insights because I think this stuff is just – I know you've been shouting it from the roof 
tops for a couple of decades now, but I know how slow things are to get around mm. the world. Um, and it's through books and it's through podcasts that we be, we are able to share directly. So for everyone listening, Patrick is a breathing expert for the want of a better description because that really sums it all up. You're, you are a potato breathing expert, but you're, you're so much more than that. Patrick, can you just give us a, a, a bit of a background about you, your, your, your career, and why the heck did you get into breathing? Yeah, I fell into it. Um, if, if I had ever said, if somebody said to me that I was going to choose a career in teaching breathing, I'd say they must have been on something. Um, I was a kid growing up with asthma, teenager with asthma. Into my college years, asthma was getting progressively worse. And, you know, the asthma you kind of live with, and I was taking medication, but I was, wasn't under great control, and I was wheezing a lot. Um, it was my sleep that was the big issue. I was waking up exhausted, not so much in primary school. Up to the age of 11, I was very bright in class. I was well up there at the top of the class. And something happened when I went into secondary school, and I went from pretty much top of the class down to the bottom of the class. Wow. And I knew, it, you know, because I can remember, you know, as a kid, you're drawn back and you're saying, like, I used to be able to keep up with all of the kids. And now I couldn't. But it was my sleep. I was falling asleep in class. And I never put a connection. I was a chronic mouth breather at the time. And, you know, this is normal with asthma, because if you're wheezing with asthma, you're just feeling that you're not getting an affair. So you're going to breathe through your mouth. But also, if you have inflammation of your lungs, you're more likely to have a stuffy nose. So I was a chronic mouth breather. And mouth breathing is keeping that kid and teenager and adult perpetually in that fight and flight response because you're breathing fast and you're breathing upper chest. You're more prone to snoring. I was a heavy snorer as a teenager. And I was also told when I went to a university and I was staying in dorms there, students were telling me that I was stopping breathing during sleep. Oh, wow. And, you know, what? I had no idea what this was, but this is obstructive sleep apnea. Um you know, so for me to get grades, I had to really work hard. And that's why <clears throat> I often feel why on earth are 25 to 50 percent of study children persistently mouth breathing? Yeah. And Lisa, nobody, nobody in the industry is doing much about it. There are a yep. few brilliant orthodontists and there are a few brilliant medical doctors. But there's a great ear, nose and throat doctor from New Zealand, oh. Dr. James Bartley. Oh. And this man has been advocating the benefits of nose breathing for 20 years. Wow. Now, he's few and far between. Um, and can you imagine ear, nose and throat doctors? They're treating the nose, but they're not actively encouraging people to use it. Exactly. And I had an operation on my nose in 1994, and nobody told me to breathe through it afterwards. And you know what? If we have a behavior of mouth breathing all the way through childhood for, say, 10, 15 years, and then suddenly we get the nose fixed. It's not just enough to treat the nose. We need to change the behavior. Yeah. So from 1994 until 1998, I kept on breathing through an open mouth. And then I read a newspaper article. And the newspaper article said two things. It said that people with asthma need to be breathing in and out through their nose. And people with asthma need to be breathing light. And I knew I was doing neither of those things because, you know, I'd always hear my breathing. I was caught for breath and, you know, my asthma was more out of control than typically what it should have been, you know, and partly that was my fault as well at the time. But, you know, kids being kids and teenagers, etc. And mm. um, that night I made a concerted effort. Well, that day I used nose and blocking exercise. 
to help mm-hmm. open up my nose. I was feeling air hunger. I switched to it. And I taped my mouth closed that night. And mm-hmm. I wore Breed Right strips on my nose as well, just to make sure my nose stayed open because I had nasal congestion. Mm-hmm. And I woke up the first morning, yeah, kind of getting used to it. The second morning, I persisted with it. I was feeling suffocated. I kept going with it. The second morning I woke up and it was the best night's sleep that I had in about 15 years. Wow. And that first week, my wheezing reduced by about 50%. Now, some people mightn't believe that, but that is absolute genuine. Wow. I I spent four years in a university in Dublin, Trinity College in Dublin, studying economics and social sciences. And I was in the corporate world. And uh, I never was going to teach this. But just two years later, I was driving from one end of the country to the other. And I just got a a gut feeling or a hunch, but I just had a feeling that God, I'd love to be teaching breathing. And I knew firsthand the difference that it made to me. And you know what? That made a big difference because people people could say, well, it's a load of nonsense and the theory doesn't stand up. And that's what I was told. And I said, listen, couldn't be, couldn't be. Look, the difference to me. You know, it's not just, it can't be, some doctor said it was placebo. I said, yep. listen, you can't just, this can't be just down to placebo. And it wasn't just my asthma. It was my sleep quality, but it was all, all also, I had focus and concentration for yep. the first time. Yeah. And people ask you, what does that mean? And I mean, focus and concentration is, if you wake up within 10 or 15 minutes, you can open up a book that's fairly complex. You can read it. And you can hold your attention there. And I wasn't able to do that in school. So you can imagine that kids and teenagers and even say, say a CEO, say somebody working in any job that's using the mind, whereby they have to concentrate. And society does demand us to concentrate. Concentration is demanded of us, but nobody teaches us how. Yep. The medical, sorry, the educational profession. Now, so I'm give, giving out about the medical profession first, and now I'm yes. giving out about the educational oh, profession. Oh, you go for it. <laughs> These kids, you know, because I was the child in school, you know, in secondary school, which is high school. I'm not sure if you call it yep. secondary school. Oh, high school, yep. Um, but basically, I'd be looking at the page, but my attention wasn't on the page because I was lost in thought. Mm. I was absolutely absorbed in my mind. And I'd read the page and to, to the outside observer, it would look as if I'm looking at the page, but I am, but my attention wasn't there. Yep. And this is where, you know, children are great as is being intelligent or academically gifted or whatever. And nobody is taking into consideration these kids sleep. Yep. Nobody is taking into consideration these kids if they have racing minds. And it's not just about treating with Ritalin or something like that. ADHD is very much related to poor sleep in children. And there has been papers on it. And, you know, this topic has been studied. And one researcher, Karen Bonnock, she looked at a a study in Stratford-upon-Avon. She conducted 11,000 children, Mm -hmm. big population, over eight years. And she concluded that sleep disorder breathing, which includes snoring in kids, if untreated by age five, these children have a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Wow. Now, we have to bear in mind, if we have poor sleep, we wake up, we're feeling lousy, we're grumpy, we're not in good form, but the child, their brain is developing. And these kids, and it's relatively common, you know, and most people don't consider it the child who's snoring. Oh, it's cute. It's not cute. No child should snore. No child should heavy breed during sleep. 
if the child is heavy breathing during sleep, there may be an issue. It needs to be wow. checked out. Well, Patrick, that's that's a, a super introduction to this whole thing because there's so much that I want to unpick there. I want to go into the whole childhood and the facial development and, and mm. um, all of that sort of stuff. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I've been an asthmatic all my life. So I, I was an asthmatic since the age of, of two. I got diagnosed with asthma. And I always thought I just could not breathe through my nose. I it was yeah. always... It was always congested. I have a very small mouth. Same story as you. I've got crooked teeth. I had to have all sorts of teeth stuff done to, you know, to fix yeah. things. I have a very narrow – and I read your book, and I just went, I've heard before that nasal breathing is good, and I'm an athlete. I'm an athlete who did ultra-distance running because I never had the capacity to do short distance. So I had a very strong mind, so I went with the long stuff, okay? But I, I ran through every most – like – pretty much every desert on earth with my mouth open. And I wish somebody had told me this 20 years ago that there was a way to unblock my nose and that I could get a lot more VO2 max, that I could get a lot more performance if I'd had my mouth closed and that I wasn't be constantly thirsty and constantly yeah. getting up all night and broken sleep and, and, and uh, dental decay and problems because I always mouth breed and bacteria. And there, there's a knock-on after knock-on effect from this just in my life. So when I read that I could clear my nose and I started doing the breath hold exercise which we'll talk about in a minute you know basically you breathe, hold your breath for as long as you can and then you breathe in through your nose and all of a sudden after two or three breaths of doing that I could unclear my nose and I was like holy heck this stuff works mm. and, and for the first few weeks it was difficult I had to sometimes it took me five or six breaths and when I would go for a run and I would I, I slowed myself down running so that I could actually breathe through my nose and I, it would take me 10 minutes of warming up until I could actually get myself into nose, nasal breathing. But I managed to do it and I'm 52 years old you're like, uh, and I, my career is over and oh my God, how tragic because I never got to see what sort of a VO2 mix I could have developed and my lungs could have been a lot better and I wouldn't have had to have so much asthma medications which have huge impacts I'm not saying that SMS medications are, are bad, but they do have side effects that are quite pronounced. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of these knock-on effects, When if I had just been taught these basics, and this is why I want to get and dive into the science with you today a little bit about why do we need to nasal breathe? Why is it very important that with children, we start this from a young, young age um, and, and, and going into all the brilliant stuff that I learned in your last book, and then even starting to delve into some of the, the, the stuff that you've been writing about this time. Because I think this is... This is the missing pillar. Like we have looked at food and exercise for the last, you know, I'm a coach. It's, you know, we, we've, we talk food and exercise every single day. Nobody has up until the last few years been talking stress reduction and mindfulness and calming the mind. And now people are getting into the breathing and the sleep. And those two are pillars that I think are absolutely Crucial, and I'm stoked to see that more and more people are starting to discuss this. Um, so, Patrick, let's let's start at the science. Let's start at nasal. Why do I need to breathe? Like, I have a mouth. My mouth is bigger than my nose. My nose is always very narrow. Why the heck should I be concerned about breathing through the nose? Well, I suppose if you look at the functions of the mouth and if you were to ask yourself, what does the mouth do in terms of breathing? 
Does the mouth warm the incoming air? No. Does it moisten incoming air? No. Does it regulate volume? No. Does it harness nitric oxide, which is an antiviral, given the time that we're in? Mm. No. Nitric oxide also is a bronchodilator, which helps people with asthma. It helps to open up the airways. And, for example, people with exercise induced asthma or even just bronchoconstriction when the airways are narrowing. Nitric oxide also redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. And it was back in 1988 that a researcher, Swift, found that when individuals following jaw surgery, when their jaws were wired shut, they were forced to continuously breathe through the nose. The PO2 in the blood, the oxygen pressure in the blood increased by 10% Wow! by nasal breathing. Now, it's Dr. James Bartley's chapter that I've taken that out. And there's other two, there's another amazing doctor, Dr. Patrick McHugh, um, similar enough name to my own, H-U-G-H, though, <laughs> McHugh. And he was investigating buteco method for asthma in New Zealand oh, and boy. talking about it. And I remember him saying 20 years ago, he was saying, this could save lives. So you think, <clears throat> Lisa, 10% of the population having asthma, New Zealand, I'd say it's 8 to 10%, similar enough to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Even the asthmatic population is not told to nasal breed. no. You know, and it, surely that makes logical sense. And it's not just that, you know, when you think of the nose, we, we think that the nose is only the part in the face. If we were to put the tongue into the roof of the mouth and drag mm-hmm. the tongue along the hard palate, mm-hmm. all the way back to the soft palate, mm-hmm. the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. Yep. So in actual fact, within the skull, we can argue that the nose is occupying more space oh, than brilliant. the mouth. For those who can't see, Patrick's got a a little uh, side thing of a head. So this (laughs) is an anatomical anatomical model here. So you're looking at the nose here. You see the lips. You see the chin. And here we have the hard palate here. So we just said, put your tongue into the roof of your mouth and draw your tongue along the hard palate until you can feel the soft palate at the back. Now, sitting above that is the nasal cavity. Now, if we look at that in depth, there's a mucus blanket here, there's turbinates here, you've got sinuses here. <clears throat> the nose is directly linked to the brain. And if we look at the mouth, if we take air in through that mouth, that air goes straight down the throat. The mouth does nothing for breathing, never has. You know. Wow. And also, the other thing about mouth breathing is, if you look down at your chest, and if you take a breath through your mouth, what part of the body moves? Typically, chest breathing is activating the upper chest, and it's also causing faster and harder breathing. Mm -hmm. And physiologically, this is putting us into a fight or flight response. So, you know, how we breathe, breathing, we can change breathing patterns to improve them, and we can influence the major disciplines of medicine. One is respiration, asthma, people with COVID recovery, people with Mm -hmm. sarcoidosis, people with um, COPD, etc. Mm-hmm. The mind, psychiatry, people with anxiety, people with depression, PTSD, panic disorder, gastrointestinal, people with IBS, for example, um, functional movement, dentistry, another discipline. You know, so when we're talking wow. about and and sleep, and we can yeah. influence this through breathing. So, just to give you an example, when we're looking at functional breathing. I emphasized a lot in terms of the biochemistry in the oxygen advantage. And the biochemistry refers to the amount of air that you breathe, the volume of air that you breathe per minute. And the volume of air that you breathe per minute 
is the respiratory rate multiplied by the size of each breath, the volume of each breath. Yep, and total the respiratory, the re, yeah, correct. And the respiratory rate is the number of breaths per minute. <clears throat> and normally it's about four to six liters during rest for an mm-hmm. adult. Mm-hmm. And the asthma population is breathing 10 to 15 liters. Wow. But also <laughs> 75, 75% of the anxiety population have dysfunctional breathing. That's what the literature is saying, 75%. Now you can imagine people with just even a racing mind because, yeah, not everybody is going to say, I've got anxiety. But let's just look at a racing mind, which is so common. That's going to be impacted by our breathing. And when I see people coming in with a racing mind and I look at their breathing, I very often see faster breathing, just a little bit faster. It's not that the person is having a panic attack. It's just their breathing is a little bit faster. Maybe the respiratory rate is 16 breaths per minute plus. They have upper chest breathing. They can often have irregular breathing patterns. So you see that their breathing might be fairly normal, but then they have a big sigh out of the blue. So it's irregular. So there's fluctuations in their breathing. And, you know, mouth breathing and not always mouth breathing, but switching from mouth to nose breathing, etc. Now, with that person, I would look at their breathing as we look at any person's breathing. From a biochemical point of view, we have them breathe light. And I'll go through an exercise in a second. Mm -hmm. And light breathing is whereby we deliberately reduce the volume of air that they are breathing in order to increase carbon dioxide in the blood a little bit. Yes. Carbon dioxide is not just that waste gas. When we increase carbon dioxide, the blood vessels dilate. They open. It's It's very common for people with slightly faster and harder breathing to have cold hands and cold feet. That's correct. So you can imagine the 70,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the human body are constricted or, you know, constricted due to that slightly faster and harder breathing. So for the person with anxiety, for the person with brain fog, for the person who's switched on and can't switch off, we need to get increased blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. And we don't do that by breathing hard. And there is an idea out there, and it's taught in many yoga studios. You know, deep and breathing. Deep, Take a deep breath. Deep breathing and big breaths. <laughs> and how do we know that? Yeah. If you go into a yoga studio, and yoga is brilliant. It's yeah. tremendous. It's giving people so many, you know, <clears throat> a lot of help. But, um, but what I would say to you is, is do not- all your yoga, but do it with silent breathing. That's all. Right. Do yeah. all of the postures, but just have silent breathing. So the person with anxiety, we want to increase blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. This is a calming effect on the central nervous system, on the brain. The second aspect is that we teach them to breathe low. And this is with lateral expansion or contraction of the lower ribs. Mm -hmm. The reason being is because of the connection between the diaphragm and the mind. So the diaphragm is connected to the brain. And when we do breathe low... I think it is definitely, there's definitely a feedback. Um, The phrenic nerve also plays a role there in in respiration. And it's likely like the the vagus nerve is innervating the diaphragm. So it's it's likely that it's the vagus nerve that's communicating that information back. So when we breathe low, it's telling the brain, you know, things are fine. Because I think throughout our evolution, I was talking all day yesterday, sorry, just take a drink of water. Yeah, no, no problem. Need a bit of vagal nerve stimulation yourself, probably after all the stress of getting a book out. <laughs> well, yesterday I had a, 
I had a filming for a documentary for the first four hours, and then I had a podcast with Ben Pakulski, oh, and then wow. I had a two and a half, a two hour and a half hour training afterwards. So you're talking for eight hours, you know, it's. You need to breathe correctly. <laughs> it can be a bit demanding, so it can. So coming back to the person with anxiety. So yeah, from biochemistry point of view, let's get blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. Biomechanics, let's get the diaphragm working as the connection with, with the mind. And also resonance frequency breathing. So by slowing down the respiratory rate then to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, mm-hmm. it's stimulating the vagus nerve. And as your listeners will know, the vagus nerve is this nerve that's wandering throughout the human body, innervating all of the major organs. And 80 to 90% of the feedback is from the vagus nerve back to the brain. So throughout our evolution, every time that we as human beings were confronted by stress, it was always accompanied by faster and upper chest breathing. Mm -hmm. So stress and faster and upper chest breathing go hand in hand. If we get stressed today, our breathing gets faster, harder, upper chest. But if we are breathing faster, harder and upper chest as part of our everyday breathing pattern, as 75% of people with anxiety and panic disorder are, that's telling the body, that's telling the brain. We're in danger. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we change and switch this off? Well, when we start practicing to breathe light, breathe slow, and breathe deep. And the acronym that I use is LSD. Mm-hmm. So light, slow, and deep breathing. The feedback then is from the body back to the brain. And the brain is interpreting it that the body is in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. Because the body would not be breathing light, slow, and deep if there was danger. Yep. And Could that's be. how we can almost trick the primitive brain And then the brain is going to send signals back to the body on the basis that the body is in a safe environment. Now, even just for people with anxiety and say PTSD, I'm thinking of all the people going to counselors, all the people doing cognitive behavioral therapy, which is all great. They're going to their psychiatrist or psychologist. But how many of them are taught functional breathing patterns not just to take a deep breath and not just to breathe a breathing exercise for five minutes just to help calm the mind. It's everyday breathing. When somebody comes in to me, I want to look at their breathing and and say, listen, I want to change your breathing, not just here, but when you walk down the street, when you're driving your car, when you're lying in bed at night. And then we could touch on sleep, you know, Think of people who are snoring, people, people who have obstructive sleep apnea. And I just, I wrote a medical paper that's with Dr. Carlos O'Connor, who's a wonderful ear, nose and throat doctor from Madrid and Dr. Plaza. And it's 10,000 words. And we submitted it for publication to the medical journals. And mm-hmm. we it went through the peer process. Yesterday, we got word it's been accepted for publication. Yep. And this is the first time looking at breathing re-education. And I mean, looking at it from a multitude of perspectives and the impact on obstructive sleep apnea. Now, an Australian researcher, Rosalba Courtney, has looked at it as well. But what I was looking for is, you know, just getting some debate on this topic, because if we think of the number of people with obstructive sleep apnea. Yep, my mum for one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's 26% of men up to age 50. 
Yep. And from age 50 to 70, it's 43% of men. Yeah. Wow. And for females, it's 9% of females up to age 50. But when the female goes through menopause, post-menopausal women, it increases by 200 to 300%. So it increases typically to about 27% are there. Why is that? Is that a drop in the estrogen levels causing a change in the temperature? Or what is it? Exactly. It's definitely due to the hormones because you're not getting hormonal fluctuations. And it it may be that it's progesterone that's a, a protective that's protective in, you know, for the for the younger female. But I think also fat deposits, you know, as we get yeah. a little bit older, we, we tend to put a bit of fat around the belly. And when we put fat on the belly, the diaphragm breathing muscle doesn't work so well. Yep. This is why it's diaphra- so bad. And when the diaphragm breathing muscle isn't working so well, the throat is more liable to collapse. So the diaphragm and the upper ear with the later muscles in the throat are connected. But even if I was just to say, like I always use the example, people would ring me up and say, well, how can you fix snoring, you know? And I say, listen, do this. As I make the sound of a snore through your mouth and they go like this. And I say, now close your mouth and try and snore through your mouth. <laughs> you can't. So the mouth, mouth snoring stops and now make a sound of a snore through your nose. And it goes like this. <laughs> Yep. But now what I'd like you to do is really breathe slowly and have a really slow breath into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow, gentle breath out through your nose, almost that you're hardly breathing and a very slow breath in, almost that you're hardly breathing and a really relaxed, slow breath out. And as you breathe really slowly, try and snore through your nose and you can do it, you but can. it's more difficult. Yeah, you it's can't. much more difficult. Yeah. And this is where... When you think of an engineer, if you were thinking, even a plumber, can you imagine a plumber coming to the house and the, you're, the, you're saying, I need to get some water from one end of the house to the other. And the plumber is thinking, well, what size pipe can I use here? The plumber is going to consider the size of the pipe is going to be determined by the flow of the water. Yep. <clears throat> and if there's a large flow of water, the plumber is going to choose a large pipe. Well, in sleep medicine, a lot of the attention is on the airway. Yep. It's on the pipe, but there's very little attention on the flow. Because if you have somebody who is breathing harder and faster, our typical person with asthma is a prime example. And it's known that as asthma severity increases, so does obstructive sleep apnea. Wow. People with asthma are tired. And why is their obstructive sleep apnea increasing? Is because when their asthma gets a little bit bad, a little bit worse, They breathe faster, they breathe harder, they're taking in more air, they're breathing up her chest, they're more likely to have the mouth open. And this is causing the negative, increased negative pressure and turbulence in the upper airway. And this is waking individuals up or arousing them from sleep. So, And then you you have the whole sleep disorder thing, like, um, um, you know, I I read a book by Matthew uh, Walker, Walker. Dr. Matthew, yeah, Dr. Matthew Walker, and hoping to get him on the show next. Um, And uh, that was just a a mind-blowing book as well, because these go hand in hand. If you're not sleeping correctly, all of the knock-on effects of every pillar of health, it doesn't matter what good food you're putting in and what good exercise you're doing, you are not going to be good if you're not breathing and if you're not sleeping. So this is absolutely fundamental. It's what you're saying is this is a fundamental of every – so pretty much every area of the body this is affecting. So whether you've got 
brain fog, whether you've got thyroid issues, whether you've got hormonal issues, where you've got uh, exercise difficulties, whether you've got asthma, all of these things, ADHD in children, and and, uh, they could have at their base this breathing problem. And let's look at that. There's no question that it's. Can't make money out of this, Patrick. Well, I think that's part of it. And the other thing is, I read many books on sleep, but very few people talk about nose breathing. And that is the elephant in the room. And I remember mm. I was in a, I was at a sleep congress. I think it was Bordeaux in France, but I was at a, I've always been kind of traveling to them. But uh, one doctor, Christian Guimano, who coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. Yep. He's considered this to be one of the founding fathers of sleep medicine. Mm. I remember him standing up in one of the, the conferences and he said to the, the room of medical doctors, pretty much all healthcare professionals with an interest in sleep, And he said, we've been talking about everything, bar the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is restoring nasal breathing. And he first started writing about this back in 2012, 13 or 14. And I'll quote, in terms of pediatrics, that's where his interest was at. But it's not just for pediatrics. It's also for the adult population. He said the only valid and complete correction of pediatric sleep disorder breathing is restoration of nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep. And sleep, now, yeah. Here we have the top sleep doctor in the world saying it, and it's going to take 20 years for this information to trickle down. We know that 50% of the adult population have their mouth open during sleep. You know, and if you have your mouth open, if the listener is waking up with their mouth open during sleep, sorry, if they wake up with their mouth open, if they have a dry mouth in the morning. Yep telling them that they are sleeping at least part of the time with their mouth open. So if the mouth is dry in the morning, you're not likely to be waking up feeling that's a big, refreshed. That's a warning sign. Just on it that is. note, um, I, I before I read your book, uh, I've also read James Nestle's book, Breathe, which was another um, mm, seminal work, amazing, amazing book. man, uh, incredible work. Um, I, I was mouth breathing the whole time. Obviously, I've been doing that my entire life. Uh, I used to have to get up and, and go to the toilet four, mm. five, six times a night. Like it was, and I sort of thought, oh, it's some sort of hormonal, menopausal, some drama going on. When I taped my mouth shut for the very first time, I slept through and I had to get up once to go to the loo. Yeah. And, and, and I woke up with, because with, I used to drink a ton in the night because I was just so dry. Uh, and I don't have any of that now. And, and I, uh, I can't remember the, the science behind it, but it was something to do with antidiuretic hormone and, and my body not producing as much urine because it's not, uh, I, yes. I forget the science, but it was just like that alone for my sleep was game changing, you know? And I think um, I really want people to like, we, we've been talking about taping your mouth <laughs> and that sounds like a torturous thing. And I, like, I, I, I must admit like the first uh, I read, I read your book and then I was like, yeah, I don't know. I might, die if I take my breath, my mouth shut. Uh, you know, I was quite frightened. And then I saw um, a video, I think it was you just showing that it was just a tiny piece this way, uh, like vertically, not right across the whole mouth like you see on some internet videos. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, I knew that I could break it if I was panicky and if I really needed to open my mouth to breathe and I had a blocked nose. Um, yeah. and, and so I I'll did sh- it that first I'll time. I'll show you another option. Yeah, option that we brought out for children, because, of course, Mm. even for kids, we don't want to be putting the tape, um, even if it's a small amount. 
But this was brought out for children specifically, and then, of course, for the adult population. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> myotape. Myotape. Now, I'll just we'll show the, it to you. It's, uh, the links in the show notes. So it's cotton tape. And I'm just taking off a piece of it here. Yeah, for people on the podcast. So he's got this so, orange piece of tape that goes around the mouth. Okay. So it just holds the mouth together. That's a good mm-hmm. look, Patrick. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good look. It'll enhance anybody's romance life. Now, yes. the next one that we're bringing out is going to be skill, skin colored <laughs> on the back of that. But it's, it's an elasticated tape. And it's also having to activate the muscles around the mouth called the orbicular source muscle. Uh-huh. So there's a number of things what we did it for. It was a training tool for children. Right. So, for instance, we would have children go through all of the exercises, decongesting the kid's nose, getting the children breathing through the nose. The kids walk in and a week later, mouth is wide open again. Yeah. So I'm saying we're helping, we're changing breathing pattern, but we're not necessarily changing the behavior of nasal breathing and mouth breathing. So I said to the kids then, this is three, four years ago, I need you to start taping your mouth during the day. If you're watching television, if you're playing with toys, if you're doing your homework. And the kids started doing the taping half an hour a day to about an hour a day if they were watching a television program. And it was a total game changer. Wow. And this was really getting, you know, the, the forming that habit of nose breathing and then I was thinking, well, kids want to talk and kids want to, they want to drink water. And this is where the myo tape came out so that the children can have the tape. And if they're watching television and if they forget about breathing through the nose, as soon as they open them out, the it tape pulls their lips together yeah. and it tells them to breathe through the nose. That's just a and retraining. We, and the other thing is we feel a much more comfortable with children wearing this during sleep. Once we've established that kids can nasal breathing during the day, that it's not the adenoids that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting children breathing through their nose during sleep. And it's really, really vitally important. You know, in terms of, you touched on it earlier on, Lisa, craniofacial development. Yes. I have I the high upper na- palate. My nose, one nostril is smaller than the other. Um, my mandible has been set back, my maxilla is set back, my airway is compromised. And the problem with this is, you know, this has been debated in dentistry for a hundred years. Can you imagine an industry of individuals armed with medical or dental degrees and debating about the impact? Is it mouth breathing which is causing, you know, crooked teeth or is the child born with a small mouth and all of this? And it's, it's really crazy stuff. And it's so unfortunate because why are fi- up to 50% of studied children persistently malbreed? And I see the role of the dentist. I wrote about this in the new book. The role of the dentist has such an important function there, our job, because they can identify the risk factors in sleep disorder, breathing in children. Yeah. We don't go to medical doctors very often, especially as adults. Well, we go to our dentist every six months and the dentist can see the risk factors. For example, they can see if the airway is compromised. They can see straight away because they're used to looking into the mouth. Does the child have a high upper palate? Wow. And the high upper palate has severe consequences. There was a paper published in 2012 in the European Journal of Pediatrics. Dr. Christian Guimano is the co-author of it looking at seven infants who died as a result of sudden infant death syndrome. They died abruptly during sleep. All of the kids had a high upper narrow palate. And the only thing that they had preceding death was a runny nose. 
Wow, so now, they just couldn't breathe. Exactly. Suffocated. Exactly. Wow. That's, they died of a hypoxia during sleep. So <sighs> you can imagine that these young babies, young infants, they already have a high upper narrow path. So their, their nasal cavity is already infringed. And all it took was a runny nose or nasal congestion because young infants can't automatically switch to mouth breathing. Right. They have to continue trying to breathe through the nose. Now, if that was spotted and all the mom or dad has to do with their thumbs wearing gloves, put it into the baby's mouth and apply gentle pressure for 10 seconds mm -hmm. because the maxilla is pliable wow. and they can gently just expand it. Or you could have a pediatric dentist able to do it with small devices. You know, and this is crazy this stuff. This is just not known. Like no local dentist would know about this. I can guarantee you. They that. don't know about it. I went down to my local dentist in my colon and I asked him, does mouth breathing have any effect on, on craniofacial development? And he said, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's, I'm not even going to bother here. You know, and it's, it's so unfortunate. And it, there is absolutely no question. Like, if we look at one, one study by Harvold, he was a functional dentist in, from Canada, and he was working, I think, in, in, in the United States. Yep. He got a group of young rhesus monkeys back in the 1970s. Hmm. And he, surgi yep. he surgically blocked their noses yep. to force the monkeys to mouthbreed. Hmm. And all of the mouth-breathing monkeys, they developed the same craniofacial abnormalities as we see in humans. Yep. Now, that's, and furthermore, when he removed the silica nose plugs to allow the monkeys going back to nasal breathing, that in many instances, the shape of their face corrected itself. Wow. So then I look at a paper by an orthodontist, a well-known orthodontist in the United States called Dr. Katrin Vig. And, uh, She's married to an orthodontist. So, you know, she knows a bit about dentistry. Yeah. And she says, we can't rely on Harvold studies because he totally blocked the noses of the monkeys and total nasal obstruction is rare in human beings. Now, she missed the point. <laughs> it's not whether the nose is totally blocked or half blocked or partial, whatever. Yeah. It's whether what caused the abnormalities was mouth breathing. That's yeah. all we need to know. So if a child is persistently breathing through an open mouth for a period of time, and let's say it's six months, you know, six months would be, say, mouth breathing syndrome. Is that sufficient to cause craniofacial abnormalities? Yep. And there's one brilliant, there's one brilliant orthodontist from Australia, from Sydney. His name is Der Derek, sorry, <clears throat> Dr. Derek Mahoney. Now, for some reason, it's Mahoney in Australia, yep, but Mahoney, Mahoney. Is, Mahoney, is, Mahoney is an Irish name. Uh -huh. And he has been writing and working in terms of functional orthodontics. I don't know for how many years. And he's got a team of ear, nose and throat doctors. He's a really well-respected orthodontist. And I remember reading an interview that he did. I wrote it in one of the books. He was on television and there was a parent with a child and the parent, the child had crooked teeth. And the parent is bringing the, her child to one dentist, one orthodontist. And the orthodontist is, is insisting, we need to extract teeth here. And the parent yeah. is saying, God, I don't want, to, I don't want no. my child to have extraction of teeth. So then he, she brought the, her child to Dr. Derek Mahoney. And Dr. Derek Mahoney says, no, we don't need to extract teeth. The problem is that the teeth, the teeth are overcrowded, not because the teeth are too big. The problem is that the jaw is too small. Mm. So let's gently Makes expand sense. the maxilla. Yep. 
to make room for all teeth. But here's the most important thing. What fits into the mouth is the tongue. And if we have a small mouth, there's not enough room for the tongue. And if there's not enough room for the tongue, it's more likely to encroach back into the airway. So orthodontics, if it's involving extraction of teeth, it's increasing the risk of obstructive sleep apnea for the rest of that child's life. Holy heck, and how many kids have had their teeth pulled? Oh, sure. And, you know... And this is what like, I get frustrated with the whole medical and people know who listen to my podcast why, because I've had some pretty horrific stories to tell in my family. But it seems that it takes 20 to 30, sometimes 50 years for the actual stuff that's happening in the, in the studies and the clinical and the lab settings to filter into actual clinical daily practice. It seems to be a lag of at least 20 years for most things. And, and, but Lisa, and yeah. you know what? There's some things that are just common sense. We don't need studies to realize that as human beings, True. we've been equipped with a nose and let's start using it. You know, for <laughs> asthma, for children, our ancestors were nasal breathing breeders. Most of the animal kingdom, with the exception of a dog, you know, a dog and a dog is using its mouth to breathe on a hot day. To cool down, yeah. But look, uh, let, dog, let, yeah. let's look at the, because um, I, I remember in, in James Nestor's book, uh, the, 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 he went and had a look at the skeletons of, yes. of our ancestors, so 400, 500 years old, 1,000 years old. Um, and what was really interesting to me, and which you've touched on here, is that they all had straight teeth and they had much bigger yes. jaws and they had forward, forward-facing jaws where we've often yeah. got receipts you know, like you and I both got, you know, receding, recessed, yeah. recessed jaws, tiny mouths, um, yeah. crowded teeth, etc. And he and he said in, in his studies of looking at hundreds of skulls and talking to anthropologists and, and people that have studied these skulls that we just had straight teeth all the time. And, yes. and one of the reasons he said was that we didn't have mushy food. Yes. We, we had to chew on really hard food, whether it was carrots and steak or whatever the case may be. And now we have, you know, porridge and yogurt and, uh, you know, all these soft, mushy, processed foods. Um, and that that contributes to the fact that we our mouths are getting smaller and therefore our airways are getting smaller. And our tongue has remained big big too big for yes. this this area so i yes. was just like wow and if i if i look at because i'm of maori descent so native new zealand my father was maori and if i look at some of the photos of my ancestors yeah uh you know the very very early photos that there there are there's only a few around but they all had beautiful big strong yes. jaw lines you know yeah. uh and now you know in my my generation my brothers and and i we've all got you know, problems with our, with our dental work, um, especially me, but, um, you know, is this a reason, you know, I've got asthma, no one in my family prior to this generation had asthma. Um, is that a contributing factor? I mean, there may be other things at play, but you know, I, I, I want people like uh, one of the other factors that he brought to bear, or it was in your book too. I think about the, the baby suckling on the breast. Yes. uh, Breastfeeding is a crucial for that, that, that development of the jaw. Can you explain that yes. one a little bit? Because, you know, yeah. people out there listening with, with yeah, little so babies. You're, you're correct in saying our ancestors had much better facial, you know, development than we do today. It's not even 400 years. I was in a dental, <coughs> a dental <coughs> clinic in, I think it was Lit- yeah, Lithuania, back about two years ago. 
And the dentist was a professor of dentistry at one of the universities. And she was commissioned with this task. Um, the city of the city in Lithuania had found graves of individuals, Lithuanian individuals who were executed by the Russians in 1917 because they rebelled. And she was commissioned with the task of trying to identify these individuals based on their, their skulls. And we looked at the skulls and photographs of the skulls. And when you were to see the forward growth of the skulls was incredible. Just, yeah, beautiful. And this is only 1917. <laughs> this is 1917. Wow. Because our, our food has changed so drastically in 80 years. It's, it has changed even. It's happening in one generation. And I think the first person to touch on this was a dentist called um, Dr. Weston Price. And he wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration that was written back in the But he went to the Maoris. He went to New Zealand. He went to Eskimos and he went to, you know, all of these native indigenous tribes. He went to, to people off the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland. And he wrote in it, on the Hebrides Islands, they were living off fish and oatmeal and traditional food for thousands of years. And commerce started coming to the island with sugar, with marmalade, yeah. with chocolate. First generation children became outbreeders. First wow. generation. Wow. That was it. And overcrowding sugar. of teeth and dental decay, etc. So there's no question there's a multitude of factors kicking in here. Mm. One aspect is the food that we're eating. Yes, it's too soft. Um, breastfeeding is not just about nutrition, but it takes effort for the baby to take the milk from the breast. Mm -hmm. And it's the effort and it's, it's the work of the muscles of the face as they're breastfeeding, which is contributing to craniofacial growth. Wow. So a child who is given a bottle, it's so easy just to take the, the bottle. Mm. But a lot of babies have problems breastfeeding if they're tongue-tied. And back in the 15th and 16th century in France, the midwives... I know it sounds a bit gross, but the midwives had an extra long fingernail. Yep. And as soon as the baby was born, they'd open the baby's mouth. And if the baby had a tongue tie, they'd clip it with their fingernail. Wow. And that by clipping the tongue tie and the tongue tie is that is just a piece of string that's holding the tongue to the floor of to the, the mouth. To the floor of the mouth. Wow. Yeah. Do they check it, that nowadays? Or they, they, um, uh, they probably do, but I'm not sure if they do really <laughs> a good job. I believe one country has made it kind of mandatory to some degree, and it's Brazil. Yeah. Okay. And Brazil is well, Brazil are years ahead in terms of the importance of nasal breathing in pediatrics. Wow. And it's probably driven by an individual Dr. Irene Marcheson, who started myofunctional therapy back in Brazil, maybe 30 years ago, you know, working from her apartment. And now she's got a university pretty much around her, people doing Crazy. PhD in myofunctional therapy. So, so coming back to it. So, yeah, breastfeeding is a factor. Um, it could be genetics there in terms of the nutrition that the mother the mother is eating um, yep. could this be also having a role that the baby then the baby is born with fix. an arrow yep. uh, yeah and here this is where, why we haven't advanced because the debate is is it a chicken or an egg yep is is the small mouth causing mouth breathing or is it the mouth breathing that's causing a small mouth and you know what <laughs> it doesn't matter because <laughs> regardless of the cause of it if a dentist, a functional dentist, recognizes in a child, this child has a, has a high 
palate mm-hmm. and a narrow jaw, V-shaped jaw, the dentist has the skills to gently expand it. They can address the problem. They can wow. address it. And can you I see it, it in my own daughter. Adult? I've done it as an adult. Yep. So how you know is when you ask somebody to smile, yeah. you're, you're checking to see if there's considerable black triangles either side of uh-huh. their smile. Uh-huh. So if you were to ask somebody to smile, you could okay. also do it, get an idea. So <laughs> if you see black triangles either side, yep. you know then that the jaw is too small for the mouth. Wow. The jaw is too small for the mouth. I, think the, I use the example in the book, uh, Prince William. Um, yes. from the United Kingdom yep. royal family. And, um, That's right, Kate. I heard that on one of your podcasts. And, you know, because you'll find these photographs very easy, just put in, you're looking for an image of Prince William and Kate Middleton, and get a photograph of the two of them side by side smiling. And then count the number of teeth that you see in, in Kate's mouth. And then count the number of teeth you see in William's. And you'll see that William's mouth, William's jaw, is significantly smaller than Kate's jaw. Wow. Now, then we have to bear in mind that maybe William had orthodontics and you can imagine the royal family would have access to the best yeah, orthodontist everything. in the land. Yeah. And it's possible that the orthodontist had um, insisted on extracting teeth in an effort to correct small. and made the jaw too small, not enough room for the tongue and increasing the risk of sleep apnea. So and if it's happened the, to the royal family, wow. how, are, how are the rest of us peasants the going to? The rest of us are buggered. <laughs> 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 well, I've definitely got the small mouth, so I know. And I've had uh, a lot of work done on the teeth, and it's better. And, um, I don't know whether this is connected, but my asthma has been better, you know, in the last few years than it was earlier. I certainly had it worse as a child than, than as an adult. Um, but now that I've changed my breathing and you know, I just wanted to touch on this a little bit for athletes too, before we wrap up, because I know, you know, you've been, you've got a big busy day ahead um, for athletes. Uh, this transition is quite a, a difficult one. It takes a bit of time to adjust your, your like to, to 24 hours, breathe through my nose. I'm still not there and I've been doing it for a few months. I forget when I get yes. into my work, for example, and I'm on the computer and I'm quite stressed with some emails or something coming in. Mm-hmm. I, I'll get up and I'll just be, I'll hear myself sighing and then I'll know, oh, 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 I'm, I'm back to brow- mouth breathing again and I'll feel very stressed and then I'll, I will check in with myself. So it's a constant learning. And with my, mm-hmm. uh, with my training as a, as a runner, it, it has taken time. So I can't go and do my high-intensity interval training at the very top end because I can't yet control the nasal yes. breathing. So I, yeah. um, any advice for, for athletes? Cause we have a lot of athletes listening to this and yeah. Yeah. Aspiring athletes. Uh, just before I do, I just send the last point in terms of expansion. So mm. I had my maxilla expanded and it was, there's a tremendous orthodontist, Dr. William Hang from California. And I used to travel over and back and also Dr. Mike Mew and John Mew in the United Kingdom. Oh, him. Yep. And it, it has been really good. And there's a concept called mewing that's gone yeah. viral. And yeah. you, you'll see Look this. Up mewing. Oh, sorry. And I think, I, think that there is, I, I think that definitely we do have, we can influence definitely the shape of the, of the face, even in adulthood. Yep. So it's not quite lost. Now, the maxillary expansion I had has led to a small bit of gum recession. So maybe yep. that's something just to keep an eye out for. But I would sooner have, a mouth that's able to house my tongue 
and a small bit of gum recession as opposed to a small mouth, not enough room for the tongue and the tongue falling into the airway. Yeah. So nasal breathing during exercise. It's much more advantageous to breathe through your nose during physical exercise than breathing through the mouth. There's less trauma on the airways. The oxygen uptake in the blood is higher. Carbon dioxide is higher with nasal breathing, which is going to generate more of an air hunger. But the increased carbon dioxide is going to cause more oxygen to be released from the hemoglobin to the working muscles. That's key. So the working muscles are getting more oxygen with nasal breathing than with mouth breathing. And there was a study back in 1995 by Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N, and looked at athletes, not athletes, but just, I think it was just normal individuals, nasal breathing, the fraction of expired oxygen was less. So in other words, the runner is breathing in and the oxygen is transferring from the lungs into the blood, but more oxygen is getting delivered throughout the body with nasal breathing than with mouth breathing. So the individual then can stay aerobically for longer. So you're just more efficient. it's, it really is. And if you look at there's one study, there's only been one, one medical sports scientist that I'm aware of in the world who is actively investigating nose breathing. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. His, his name is Dr. George Dallam, D-A-L-L-A-M. He's working with triathletes in the United States, and he himself was a triathlete. And he's working with triathletes at a really high level. So we're talking about an Olympic level here. And he did a study in 2018. He got 10 recreational athletes and he said, I want you to switch to nose breathing for six months during all of your physical exercise and then I'll test you. In other words, he wanted to test them after the adaptations had taken place Mm. and he tested them after six months. The respiratory rate was less with nasal breathing than with mouth breathing. Carbon dioxide in the blood was 44 millimeters of mercury with nasal breathing, 40 millimeters of mercury with mouth breathing. So it was higher with nasal breathing. The fraction of expired oxygen was less with nasal breathing. So nasal breathers were more efficient in terms of their utilization of oxygen, but they had 22% less ventilation and they were able to achieve, the nasal breathing group was able to achieve 100% of the work rate intensity in comparison to mouth breathers. Without all the wear and tear. 22% less ventilation. Now, if you think of an endurance athlete, there's an economical Mm. saving there because, you know, there's an energy cost associated with breathing. Mm. Mm. And if you have an individual who is having to breathe a lot for a given level of exercise, number one is a lot of our oxygen consumption goes to support the breathing muscles. But number two, the breathing muscles can get fatigued. Yep. And especially if we're overworking them. And if the breathing muscles tire, if the diaphragm gets tired, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. And the legs will go from, you know, the legs are going to give out. I can tell you a story about that, just briefly to interrupt you, because being an ultramarathon runner where you're running for 40, 50 hours at a time, like the pain in my chest, not from just the muscles, they had been working so hard because I was a mouth breather all the time. So in, in deserts and Himalayas and all sorts of places, uh, apart from the fact that I was taking in all this pollution and dust and goodness knows whatever else directly in with no filter, I was actually exhausted 
the, the, my, my muscles and my rib cage would hurt just from breathing. And it's like revving the engine and having the accelerator yes. on at the same time. And I'm not being efficient with that. So, so sorry yes. to interrupt you, but I just was like, Oh yeah, I've been there. Yeah. You yeah. know, but you know, I can understand like if you go down to a gym when they're back, when they're back open and if you were to look around, you'll see that 95% of people are exercising with their mouth open. Mm-hmm. And all I would say to is for a recreational athlete, switch all of your physical exercise to nose breathing. And yes, it is more challenging at the start. And it's challenging based on three things. Number one is your bolt score. And your bolt score is a test that you do while sitting down. You, have, you need a watch or a timer. Sit down for about five minutes, allow your breathing to recover. Have your breathing normal. And then just take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your breath and time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the Mm -hmm. first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles? Now, that has been tested in 2018 um, using the exact same kind of description by a professor of physical therapy called Professor Kyle Kiesel. And his conclusion was that if the breath hold time is greater than 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that this functional breathing is not present. So any athlete and any individual who is interested in proving their, their ability to do physical exercise, measure your bolt score. Yep, I do every increase day. It, increase yep. the bolt score. And if you do have asthma, you know, if there's inflammation of the lungs, that communication from the lungs is going to the brain and it will reduce your bolt score. If you have anxiety, you might have a lower bolt score. So, you know, it gives you some feedback not just on how sensitive are you to carbon dioxide buildup, but also um, if there's inflammation of the lungs, et cetera. So your bowl score, the higher your bowl score, the less air you need for a given level of physical exercise. So it's a measurement of the degree of breathlessness. The second factor is the size of your nose. Now, what we use is we use nasal dilators, and I don't have my own ones here, but basically, if you were to have a person to do this, it's called the Kotlin maneuver. If you put one finger here and one finger here, yeah, and just gently prise your nostrils apart. Mm, I thought I'd do it not to. And if you feel a difference there, mm. so we, there are nasal dilators on the, on the market, and we oh. have our own one. I'm going to show you one. But, well, I'll uh, get the link from you so that I can share that because I need that. It's just. So this is it here. Right. And this is a little device that's put into the nose. And what it does is it helps open up the nose so that you can stay with nasal breathing without having nasal valve collapse. Wow. Because, like, I've got a husband who's got a broken nose, had a broken nose many times from being hit in rugby and so on. And and that side just collapses. So he keeps saying to me, I can't, I can't nose breathe. I can't nose breathe because I can't, it just shuts down. And I've had these arguments yes. with them. And would that help him in that, that sort of a case? Yeah. And for sleep, I'd also say to him to get, there is one for sleep. It's called Mute Mute Snoring is one for sleep. It's an Australian product. Um, so what I'd say is to any man, you know, we have to get the mouth closed. And another mm. reason for a man to get the mouth closed is erectile dysfunction. So maybe that might, that might motivate <laughs> It's a good but, <laughs> motivator. But genuinely, Lisa, um, for men, and oh, I'm, I'm nearly 50, there is a risk that when men have sleep disorder breathing, you know, a man should wake up with an erection in the morning. Yeah. That is the reality of it. Yeah. And that is a, an indicator. It gives you an indicator of, of your how health. well your, your cardiovascular system is working. Mm-hmm. And 
men with poor sleep problems, they don't wake up with an erection in the morning. Right. And this is really important that we have to get the man breathing through the nose. And I'll always say to the, the lads coming in, listen, I need your mouth closed, breathing in through your nose, tongue on the roof of the mouth, and an erection in the morning. And that's genuine just for health. <laughs> You're good to go. It makes sense because yes. it's nitric oxide, isn't it? I mean, that's what uh, Viagra does, for example. And I'm sorry, the one I've gone dark here because it's nighttime over here and I've lost my light and I didn't have it on. Like, but, that's um, all right. But, um, but for those well, watching... Well, the nitric oxide from yeah. the nose is isolated to the lungs. But, uh, you know, there's other things going on. I'm not sure exactly why um, individuals with, say, nasal polyps were more prone to erectile dysfunction. But I think it's just the autonomic nervous system, you know, yeah. again, and it might come back to what you said earlier on. If our sleep is off, it's affecting so many different functions yeah. of the human body. You know, if, think of somebody with depression and think of the amount of people with depression who have exhaustion. And I wrote, it's, it's, this is like, I've seen this. People come in with depression. I asked them, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? I'm waking up absolutely exhausted. Yeah. Has your, has your doctor ever asked you about your sleep quality? No, no, no. And the reason being is because it's too easy to think that it's the depression that's causing exhaustion. But then when we look at studies that individuals who have both insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea, which can be as high, the two of them can go together as high as 67%, but definitely you're in around 30%. When you have insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea together, you've got a higher risk of depression. Wow. So what's causing what? And yep. here's why we have to think of the human body as, you know, how one function is affecting the other. But just coming back to the athlete, recreational athletes, it's a bit tougher. You're switching to nose breathing. Do your best. Your nose is going to run. Bring a, <clears throat> bring a hanky with you. Yep. Um, keep on breathing through your nose during physical exercise. And you might have to slow down the pace by about 10% initially. But after about six to eight weeks, the air hunger diminishes. Yep. And your recovery post-physical exercise is going to be better. Mm -hmm. There's less trauma on the airways. Mm -hmm. Nose breathing is increasing oxygen transfer from the lungs to the blood and from the blood to the working muscles. Nose breathing is also activating the diaphragm. So we get greater amplitude of the diaphragm. And diaphragmatic amplitude plays a role in functional movement. Wow. So individuals, we, we cannot have functional movement without having functional breathing. And it's the generation of intra-abdominal pressure. You know, as the, as the diaphragm is moving downwards during inhalation and back up to the resting position during exhalation. And that's, that zone of opposition is generating intra-abdominal pressure. And it's the generation of intra-abdominal pressure that's support for the spine. So, for example, 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing patterns. Wow. And then you'd have to ask, how are they breathing? Are they breathing upper chest? Are they breathing fast upper chest breathing? And are they getting the stabilization and support from the diaphragm that they really need? Now, a competitive athlete, I would say to them, listen, try and do at least 50% of your training nasal breathing, 50%. Because when you breathe through your nose, it is adding an extra load onto your breathing. It's helping to strengthen your breathing muscles. It's helping to reduce your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And it is helping to cause many adaptations. So for at least 50%, breathe through your nose. And then there's a time when you have to push the intensity. Go from maybe nose in and nose out to nose in and breathe out through your mouth. So I have to. out through the mouth. Yep. And then if the intensity is getting too high, 
intra mouth and outra mouth. But maybe use a nasal dilator. I'm not sure if a nasal dilator is, is allowed now in, in competitive sports. You might have to just check that out. And I'd also say to athletes is do breath holding because, yep. you know, been doing that. There was, <laughs> for rugby players, you know, there was a study by Wurons published in 2018, W-O-O-R-O-N-S. And if you put in Wurons and rugby into Google, PubMed, you'll pull it up. He got 21 rugby union players. They were professional players in Australia, 21 years of age. He divided them into two groups. In for, for four weeks, he got them doing 40-meter sprints. Mm-hmm. One group, he got them doing 40-meter sprints on a breath hold, the same breath hold that we use in the oxygen advantage. Mm-hmm. Exhale and hold. The other group, the control group, were doing 40-meter sprints with normal breathing. At the end of four weeks, the group who were doing the 40-meter sprints with, with breath holding, their repeated sprint ability, which is a performance indicator in team sports, yep. that's your ability to do all-out effort followed by a very brief recovery before all-out effort. It increased from nine reps to 14.8 before exhaustion. Wow. So in four weeks, you have professional rugby union players with four weeks of training, and it was only two to three sets a week. It only took about 20 minutes each set that they were able to increase their RSA, repeated sprintability, from nine reps to 14.8 in that four weeks. And the group who were doing the 40-meter sprint with normal breathing, they increased marginally from something like nine to 10 10 reps before exhaustion. So I've had a friend, actually, uh, a coach at the local uh, high school here, and he he (laughs) did that, replicated that, that that study and saw huge improvements in his young athletes, you know, his rugby, yes. rugby players. Um, yeah. And he, he couldn't believe that they could improve so much. So there is just yes. so much lying on the table for young athletes. I've been yes. training a young surfing girl here and, you know, I, I hope to see some changes in her VO2 max yeah. and her ability. Yes. So that, that's yeah. really, well, really exciting. Tell her that Laird Hamilton, uh, he yeah. wrote the foreword of the new book. Wow. So, He's a legend. I'm involved with XPT in terms oh. of they have a breathing arm and what they do. They do breathing and movement and recovery. Yep. And uh, Lard was, he was kind <laughs> enough to write it. And I've seen him do the exercises. <laughs> and here is a guy who can push the limits. Yeah, and, yeah know, for sure. He's, he is. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's great. He's great. He's yeah. an absolute legend. Yeah, yeah, and and this is the thing. Same with Brian McKenzie. I've uh, had the privilege yes. of learning from Brian directly, and um, you know, there's, there's, so it's starting to get out there. But there is just yes. for athletes, for upcoming athletes. You know, my career is too late for me. But um, if I if I could rewind the clock and go back again, what more could I have done? And if you've got a young athlete that's wanting, and, and when you're in a competitive athlete world, you're going for 1%, you know, whatever can get, yes. can you imagine how much is lying on the table if the coaches knew yes. about this? It's lying on the table because, you know, only innovators are touching it on the moment. And yep. it's, it's not just in terms of exercise performance. We also have to consider sleep. Yep. You know, what about the athlete who is anxious before an event and there's a yep. poor night's sleep? That's what we I've been using that. it for, for my athletes. The anxiety, we, like we, to be out of control. Yeah. Even in terms of pre-competition preparation, mm-hmm. you know, we do a root, routine in terms of relaxing the individual. And then we do a routine in terms of stressing them to increase blood flow to the brain, to make them more alert mm-hmm. and to get the spleen to contract, to release red blood cells into circulation. So, you know, wow. I think in terms yeah. of this sleep the mind, asthma, hay fever, 
athletic performance and you might have an athlete with anxiety and hay fever, you know, and anxiety. What about women? You know, yep. women oh, during the, the monthly cycle. cycle. Um, and they're going to have a change in their breathing patterns between, you know, post-ovulation, between days 10 to days 22, middle luteal phase. And this in turn is increasing their respiratory rate. Carbon dioxide levels are, are dropping. And wow. the effect it has on pain panic. and anxiety, panic and fatigue. You know, why Why doesn't um, the female population in terms of breathing, this has been known since 1905, and yet I've females that. aren't that's aware new. of it, unfortunately. That's, yeah, It's a new thing to me. And then, you, you you know, things like osteoporosis in diabetes, you mentioned, and, you know, before we started recording, um, I knew yes. of the osteoporosis connection because it, it, it affects the pH level of the blood, which means that you're having more acidic uh, blood, isn't it, when you have too much... Uh, or not enough carbon dioxide. Is it is that the right way around? And well, say, for example, if there is insufficient carbon dioxide, the theory there would be that there's not enough oxygen getting to the muscles. And as a result of not enough oxygen getting to the muscles, the hydrogen ion doesn't get oxidized. So yep. it as- associates with pyruvic acid form lactic acid. So wow. you've got a, a drop to pH as a result of the lactic acid. Um, but I think overall, in terms of the breath, there's an ability to improve functional breathing patterns to really influence the autonomic nervous system to get a better balance, you know, in terms of the, the parasympathetic and sympathetic response. But there's also breathing exercises then to stress the body, to force the body to make adaptations. That's what I wanted to just briefly touch on with you, you know, the famous Wim Hof, uh, we all know. Yeah. And when I was reading your book and James's book, um, I was like a little bit confused because I was like, but I've done Wim Hof and I thought that was healthy. And then I sort of flipped the other way and then I flopped back again and gone, well, hang on. So this is... Wim Hof uh, sort of proclaims the over-breathing and the hyperventilating um, followed by very slow breathing. And and I see this as an athlete as that's my interval training sessions. So I don't want to be doing that, you know, seven days a week and uh, 24 Mm. hours a day. I, I see that as a very powerful combination when I'm doing it for 20 minutes every second day uh, to do the over-breathing because it does, you know, it's, it's irrefutable that, that what Wim Hof's done and with a study with the uh, endotoxins that they injected into yes. him and stuff. I mean, that, that stuff's pretty powerful, those, those studies, um, yeah. activating the immune system. But where I see the danger is that I think you need to get your breathing patterns for the other 23 and a half hours a day sorted Correct. first before yes. you step up into those extreme breathing techniques, you know, and you need to be – able to handle a hermetic stress. So if you're a very old, uh, older individual, a sick individual, a person who can't, who's very, very stressed, probably not the time to start or that not the place yes. to start. Would you agree with, with that assessment? I would. Yes, I would. Yeah. Um, you know, the Wim Hof method has been wonderful in terms mm. of putting the breath work out there. Mm. It's involving a series of 20 to 30 hard, fast breaths to get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. And because you lose a lot of carbon dioxide, then when you stop breathing, you can stop breathing for a long time because the alarm to breathe is being depleted. And as you stop breathing for a long time, your blood oxygen saturations can really go to low levels. Mm. And your carbon dioxide doesn't recover throughout the exercise, at least in Cox's paper when I looked at the data on it. So it's a hypoxic, hypocapnic response. Yep. And I would always say to, you know, we have a lot of Imhoff instructors that are also oxygen advantage instructors. And we always use it, you know, 
do the Vim Hof, do the stressor exercises, but always recover. So if you hyperventilate and do breath holding, mm-hmm. and we've included some new exercise again, they've been taken from some of our instructors who are involved with two more yoga and, you know, yep. stressor exercise. So one is rapid fire breaths. That's breathing up to three breaths per second for one minute. Wow. And then really light breathing for one minute. So you're shaking the autonomic nervous system. Yep. You know, you want to stress it, you want to relax it. Yep. So and I do agree with you that the point that you said, you know, if you're stressing your body by doing different breathing exercises, also think of your functional breathing for the rest of the day, because mm. that also is very, very important. Yeah. And I think a base level health before you go and do an extreme stuff. So getting your nasal breathing right first, getting your mouth taping sorted first, then adding in these, you know, once you've got your base level, it's like setting the foundation for your, for your health and your fitness. You don't start out running a marathon when you can't run a 5k. Um, And and there are certain times and certain breathing techniques for that will definitely be helpful. Um, uh, holotropic breath work and things like that for psychiatric conditions. And, you know, we can get into some really um, crazy stuff that can do amazing things to our uh, our physiology. We we need to understand where that's coming from. And I think starting with the oxygen advantage, starting with regulating your breathing, then stepping it up into, you know, it's the same with my athletes. I don't start a beginner with an interval training session every day, you know, we work up slowly towards that once we've got a good basis um, of health and then we yeah. push it. And I yeah, think, yeah. yeah, that's where the power lies. And then, you know, the whole cold therapy and stuff like that, that is all powerful as well. You know, it's yes. all, uh, again, all these hermetic stresses, the body likes to be hot, cold. It likes to be starved for a while. It likes to have good food for a while. You know, we need this yes. push and this pull in every aspect of physiology is what I'm seeing. Um, and I think the, with the breathing, it's the same. So we go in and we stress it for 20 minutes and we go back to our normal, healthy breathing. I've got one last question for you, Patrick, and this is, uh, personal. (laughs) My mum has obstructive sleep apnea uh, after her aneurysm. Yeah. So we don't know whether it, it happened because of uh, something in the brain, the brain damage, um, or whether she, she was at the time overweight. She's not now. Um, she's on a sleep apnea machine. Can I still tape her mouth or should I do yes. that round the ma- mouth tape? Because she has to wear a, you know, a full sleep apnea CPAP mask. And I've been a yeah. little bit reluctant to, you know, uh, well, to do it. Yours, there's a much better CPAP um not just compliance, but also you would expect a better result mm-hmm. when the mouth is closed. It doesn't oh. make sense for air, you know, in terms of splinting open the airway, oh. it would be much better if the individual, if your mom was able to breathe in and out through the nose during sleep. So we would now, if you didn't want to tape across the lips, mm-hmm. what I would say is, is look at the myo tape because okay. it is surrounding the mouth or there's another one is chin up strips. Uh-huh. But definitely getting the mouth closed to breathe through the nose, okay. yeah, it's going so, to be important. And she could do that with the whole mask on as well at the same yeah, time. Yeah, but I'd say is also make sure that she switches to nose breathing during the day because yeah. if you have an individual who is breathing mouth breathing and fast breathing and hard breathing during the day and then you're trying to get breathing through the nose only during night, yep. it's difficult. No, Let's get breathing through the yeah, yeah, during the day first. And once you can establish, you can breathe comfortably through the nose during the day. Yeah. then started during sleep. 
Okay, that's brilliant. Look, Patrick, I've taken up so much of your time. I could talk to you for days, honestly. I think we'd have so much to compare, especially uh, with some of the crazy athletic stuff that I would love to share with you of, uh, and get your experience. But um, I, I, w- I want to just say, people, go and buy The Oxygen Advantage. That book's already out in the world. Um, the, the next one is The Breathing Cure. That's correct, isn't it, uh, Patrick? That's it, yeah. Uh, that's just about to hit the shelves, and that's a real seminal work. I, uh, I can't stress enough how important this work that Patrick is doing is for our health and just fundamental basics that we should be all taught. Um, so thank you so much, Patrick, for the work that you do. I know, you know, you're going hard out trying to get this message out there. And I hope this podcast reaches a little bit more of a corner of the world and shares your work because it's phenomenal. It really is. Great, great. We have a couple of instructors as well in New Zealand, um, Garrett and Will, and uh, you'll find them on our website. So, you know, Wonderful. if people were looking for some kind of local knowledge, yes, reach out absolutely. to them. Absolutely. Yeah. So and uh, if, it's on my list of uh, courses to do. <laughs> great, great stuff. <laughs> Get a breath, <laughs> so to speak. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Lisa. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.